this is Dean Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. Sarah Forgy and I are happy to present the podcast of the December issue. Sarah will read the abstracts, and then I will return with some commentary on the papers. We begin this issue with tracheostomy tube in place at intensive care unit discharge is associated with increased ward mortality by Martinez et al. This was a prospective observational cohort study from a medical surgical ICU in a tertiary care hospital. The authors recorded clinical and epidemiologic variables, indication and timing of tracheostomy, time to decannulation, characteristics of respiratory secretions, need for suctioning, and Glasgow Coma Score at ICU discharge. They excluded patients who had do-not-resuscitate orders, tracheostomy for long-term airway control, neuromuscular disease, or neurological damage. A total of 118 patients were tracheostomized in the ICU, and 73 were discharged to the ward without neurological damage. Of these, 35 had been decannulated. Ward mortality was 19% overall, 11% in decannulated patients, and 26% in patients with the tracheostomy tube in place. The difference was not statistically significant in the univariate analysis. However, the multivariate analysis found three factors associated with ward mortality. Those factors are lack of decannulation at ICU discharge with an odds ratio of 6.76, body mass index greater than 30 kilograms meters squared with an odds ratio of 5.81 and tenacious sputum at ICU discharge with an odds ratio of 7.27. The authors conclude that lack of decannulation of conscious tracheostomized patients before ICU discharge to the general ward was associated with higher mortality. Next, we have the paper, Can Outcomes of Intensive Care Unit Patients Undergoing Tracheostomy Be Predicted? by Gerber et al. This was a retrospective review of data from the Medical Record and Project Impact Database in a 24-bed medical surgical ICU in a 500-bed university hospital. From 2004 through 2006, 60 adult patients underwent tracheostomy as part of their ICU management. The authors classified each patient as either not readmitted, readmitted, died on the floor after ICU discharge, died on first ICU admission, or combined readmitted, died on the floor. Patients who died on their regular floor were significantly heavier than patients discharged without need for readmission. Patients with a history of sepsis and those with a history of neurological disease had a tendency towards worse outcomes, but those did not reach statistical significance. These findings suggest that it is difficult to predict outcomes of patients who undergo tracheostomy in the ICU. North American Survey of Respiratory Therapist and Physician Tracheostomy Decannulation Practices is by Stelfox et al. The authors performed a cross-sectional survey of 52 respiratory therapists and 102 physicians at 54 medical centers in North America to characterize contemporary decannulation practices. Therapists and physicians rated ability to tolerate capping, secretions, cough effectiveness, and level of consciousness as the most important factors in the decannulation decision. 
with therapists placing greater emphasis on ability to tolerate capping and physicians on level of consciousness. In the clinical scenarios, therapists and physicians recommended decannulation with similar frequency. Patients were most likely to be recommended for decannulation if they had a strong cough, scant, thin secretions, required minimal supplemental oxygen, and were alert and interactive. In addition, therapists were more likely to recommend decannulation for patients who demonstrated an ability to tolerate tracheostomy tube capping for 72 hours and whose etiology of respiratory failure was COPD. Therapists preferred shorter time frames for defining decannulation failure than did physicians, 48 hours versus 96 hours. Both groups identified 2 to 5% as an acceptable rate of decannulation failure. The authors concluded that important differences exist in the decannulation practices of North American respiratory therapists and physicians. The self-inflating resuscitation bag delivers high oxygen concentrations when used without a reservoir. Implications for neonatal resuscitation is by Johnston and disease. The authors measure the delivered fractional oxygen concentration, or FDO2, from preterm size Lairdal silicone resuscitators without a reservoir. A neonatal test lung was manually ventilated using the resuscitator without a reservoir. An oxygen flow meter was used to provide the desired oxygen inlet flows. FDO2 was measured using three different resuscitators after four minutes of manual ventilation of the neonatal test lung at inspired tidal volumes of 5 milliliters or 20 milliliters, respiratory rates of 40 breaths per minute or 60 breaths per minute, and oxygen inlet flows of 1 to 4, 5, and 10 liters per minute. In all tests using 5 or 10 liters per minute, FDO2 exceeded 0.95. The lowest FDO2 was 0.59 at 1 liter per minute. The authors concluded that the FDO2 measured during this study did not differ from the manufacturer's specifications. The FDO2 did, however, differ from information contained in the North American Neonatal Resuscitation Program Manual regarding use of a self-inflating bag without a reservoir. They recommend that care should be taken when selecting a self-inflating resuscitation device to provide blended air and oxygen, as high concentrations of oxygen may be delivered by these devices, even when the reservoir is removed. Next is the paper, In Vitro Delivery of Budesonide from 30 Jet Nebulizer Compressor Combinations Using Infant and Child Breathing Patterns by Berg and Picard. The aim of this study was to determine in vitro the inhaled mass and aerosol characteristics of budesonide inhalation suspension from a selection of jet nebulizer compressor combinations presently marketed in the United States, Europe, and Japan. The in vitro characterization was performed using standardized and published methods. Each nebulizer was charged with 2 milliliters of inhalation suspension containing 0.5 milligrams budesonide and run until the end of aerosol formation. 
droplet size and distribution was determined using a cooled impactor at an airflow of 15 liters per minute. The inhaled mass of budesonide was collected on the inhalation filter using a breathing simulator that mimicked the breathing patterns of an infant and a child. The aerosol was collected on filters placed between the nebulizer mouthpiece and the breathing simulator. Budesonide was quantified via standard high-performance liquid chromatography. The mass median aerodynamic diameter of the aerosol measured with the cooled impactor ranged from 4.8 micrometers and 9.9 micrometers, and the geometric standard deviation ranged between 1.7 micrometers and 2.1 micrometers. The inhaled mass of budesonide expressed as a percentage of the nebulizer charge ranged from 1% to 9% for the infant breathing pattern and from 4% to 20% for the child breathing pattern. The authors concluded that the in vitro budesonide mass collected on the inhalation filter and delivery characteristics differed considerably between the 30 nebulizer compressor combinations. Outcomes of non-invasive ventilation in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure in a respiratory intensive care unit in North India is by Agarwal et al. The objective of this study was to determine the outcomes of non-invasive ventilation, or NIV, and the factors associated with NIV failure in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. This was a prospective observational study, and all patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure requiring NIV over one and a half year period were enrolled in the study. The authors recorded the etiology of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and prospectively collected the data for heart rate, respiratory rate, and arterial blood gases at baseline, one hour, and four hours. The patients were further classified into two groups based on the etiology of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, either acute lung injury or acute respiratory distress syndrome, or acute hypoxemic respiratory failure due to other causes. The primary outcome was the need for endotracheal intubation during the ICU stay. During the study period, 287 patients were admitted in the ICU, and of these, 40 patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure were initiated on NIV. The baseline characteristics were similar in the two groups. After one hour, there was a significant decrease in respiratory rate and heart rate, with increase in pH and PaO2. However, there was no difference in improvement of clinical and blood gas parameters between the two groups. NIV failures, the mean ICU and hospital stay, and the hospital mortality were similar in the two groups. In the univariate logistic regression model, the only factor associated with NIV failure was the baseline ratio of PaO2 to FiO2 ratio. The authors concluded that NIV should be judiciously used in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Singh et al. present the paper, An Assessment of Nutritional Support to Critically Ill Patients and Its Correlation with Outcomes in a Respiratory Intensive Care Unit. 
The objective of this study was to assess the adequacy of nutritional support administered to patients requiring mechanical ventilation in the respiratory ICU of a tertiary care hospital and its correlation with outcomes. This was a prospective cohort study of patients greater or equal to 15 years old who underwent mechanical ventilation for at least 24 hours and had a respiratory ICU stay of at least 48 hours. Enteral nutritional support was initiated as soon as possible after respiratory ICU admission. The daily calorie and protein prescription was 30 kilocalories per kilogram and 1.2 grams per kilogram ideal body weight respectively, with appropriate adjustments for critical illness and comorbidities. Anthropometric and laboratory parameters were assessed serially. Risk factors for hospital mortality were evaluated using multivariable logistic regression analysis. Calorie prescription increased from a medium of 88.9% of the recommended values on day 1 to 114.4% on day 21 protein prescription improved from 80.1% of the recommended value on day 1 to 98.4% on day 28. Calorie delivery increased from 55.1% of the recommended value on day 1 to 92% on day 28. Protein delivery improved from 46.7% of the recommended value on day 1 to 75.3% on day 28. Risk factors for hospital mortality identified were admission, sequential organ failure assessment score with an odds ratio of 1.3 and a mean daily calorie delivery of less than 50% of the recommended value with an odds ratio of 12.08. The authors concluded that calorie and protein delivery to critically ill patients remains less than the recommended values and inadequate calorie delivery is associated with higher odds of mortality. Automatic tube compensation as an adjunct for weaning in patients with severe neuroparalytic snake envenomation requiring mechanical ventilation, a pilot randomized study, is by Agarwal et al. The aim of this study was to evaluate if the combination of pressure support ventilation, or PSV, and automatic tube compensation, or ATC, is superior to PSV alone in weaning patients with severe neurotoxic snake envenomine receiving mechanical ventilation. 41 patients on assist control ventilation were randomized to weaning with PSV alone or PSV plus ATC. In both groups, PSV was initially set at 15 cm water and CPAP at 5 cm water with progressive downward titration. The ATC group additionally received inspiratory ATC at 100% through a ventilator software-driven algorithm. The primary outcome measure was weaning duration. Secondary outcomes included reintubation rate, occurrence of pneumonia, and hospital mortality. Median time to presentation to hospital after snake bite was 7 hours. Median duration of weaning was significantly shorter in the ATC versus the PSV group at 8 hours versus 12 hours. 
Median duration of mechanical ventilation and ICU stay were similar between the PSV and the ATC groups. No patient in either group needed reintubation or died in the hospital. The authors concluded that the addition of ATC to standard PSV-based weaning protocol significantly shortened time needed to wean patients with severe neurotoxic snake envenomine without changing the duration of medical care, morbidity, or mortality. Malaguti et al. present their paper, Reliability of Chest Wall Mobility and its Correlation with Pulmonary Function in Patients with Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease. The objective of this study was to analyze the reliability and accuracy of chest wall mobility measurements and investigate the association between chest wall mobility and inspiratory capacity. 26 patients with COPD were evaluated over two visits. Spirometry was performed during the first visit to characterize the sample. At each visit, two independent observers made chest wall mobility measurements twice, at the levels of the axillary, xiphosternal, and abdominal regions using a measuring tape. Despite high variability at all levels, the main results were that 1. Two measurements made on the same day by the same observer showed good reliability, and 2. Two independent observers making the measurements on the same day showed fair to good reliability. 3. The same observer making the measurements at different visits, at least two days apart, showed good reliability. Four. Inspiratory capacity was not associated with axillary and xiphosternal mobility, but it was closely related to measurements taken at the abdominal level. The authors concluded that, despite high reliability of intra-observer and inter-observer measurements, both within and between visits, High variability was observed in all chest wall mobility measurements. Although there was an association between inspiratory capacity and measurements made at the abdominal level, chest wall mobility did not correlate with pulmonary function. The last original research paper is Hallway versus Treadmill 6-Minute Walk Tests in Patients with Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease by Almeida et al. In a crossover study, the authors compared the results from hallway and treadmill six-minute walk tests by 19 patients with moderate to very severe COPD. Each patient did three hallway tests and three treadmill tests. The hallway tests were according to the American Thoracic Society guidelines. The mean hallway walk distance was significantly greater than the mean treadmill walk distance. Between the hallway and treadmill tests, agreement was very poor via Bland-Altman analysis, correlation was low, and those differences were not explained by differences in patient effort. The differences between the three treadmill tests were greater than those between the three hallway tests, and in both the hallway and treadmill tests, patient effort progressively diminished, indicating a learning effect. The authors concluded that hallway and treadmill walk tests are not interchangeable. I'm back with some commentary on this month's papers. We begin with two papers related to outcomes for patients after tracheostomy. With the recent tendency towards earlier tracheostomy in patients receiving mechanical ventilation, this is an important topic. 
Martinez et al. determined the effect of tracheostomy tube in place after ICU discharge on hospital mortality. Ward mortality was 26% in patients with the tracheostomy tube in place. The three factors associated with ward mortality were lack of decannulation at ICU discharge, body mass index greater than 30 kilograms per meter squared, and tenacious sputum at ICU discharge. Gerber et al. determined whether mortality and need for ICU readmission of patients undergoing tracheostomy can be predicted. They found that patients with a greater weight or a history of sepsis or underlying neurologic disease may be at greater risk of poor outcomes. The results of these studies suggest that there are opportunities to improve the safety and care of patients who leave the ICU with a tracheostomy. This issue is addressed in the editorial by Wilcox and Schmidt, who suggest three approaches to improve the care of these patients. One, the use of decannulation protocols. Two, discharging the patient to a respiratory step-down unit rather than a general care ward. And three, use of tracheostomy teams. Another tracheostomy-related paper is by Stelfox et al., Little is known about how clinicians make decisions to decannulate patients and whether RTs and physicians make similar decisions. The authors conducted a North American survey of RT and physician tracheostomy decannulation practices. RTs were more likely to recommend decannulation for patients who demonstrated an ability to tolerate tracheostomy tube capping for 72 hours and whose etiology of respiratory failure was COPD. Despite these differences, there was broad concordance among RTs and physicians regarding the decision to decannulate. As Hefner points out in his editorial, tracheostomy expertise must follow patients wherever they go in the hospital, but this rarely occurs. Similar to Wilcox and Schmidt, Hefner suggests tracheostomy teams may improve the care of the patient with a tracheostomy. Johnston and Aziz measured the FDO2 from preterm size Lairdal silicone resuscitators without a reservoir. They found that in all tests using 5 or 10 liters per minute, FDO2 exceeded 0.95. The lowest FDO2 was 0.59 at 1 liter per minute. These data differ from the FDO2 stated in the North American Neonatal Resuscitation Program Provider Manual. Unfortunately, many clinicians have been trained to believe that FDO2 greater than 0.5 is not possible without a reservoir. As Salyer points out in his editorial, this is an example of the confusing nature of the conventional wisdom. Salyer goes on to address a number of other important issues related to the use of manual resuscitators in newborns. The introduction of new nebulizer compressor combinations raises the question of whether the performance of these is similar to existing devices. Berg and Picard determined the inhaled mass and aerosol characteristics of budesonide inhalation suspension from a selection of jet nebulizer compressor combinations presently marketed. Specifically, they evaluated the in vitro delivery of budesonide from 30 jet nebulizer compressor combinations using infant and child breathing patterns. Delivery characteristics differed considerably between the 30 nebulizer compressor combinations. The mass median aerodynamic diameter of the aerosol ranged from 4.8 microns to 9.9 microns. 
The inhaled mass of budesonide, expressed as a percentage of the nebulizer charge, ranged from 1% to 9% in the infant model and from 4% to 20% in the child model. As the authors correctly state, further investigations of new nebulizer compressor combinations are warranted. Agarwal et al. conducted a study to determine the outcomes of NIV and the factors associated with NIV failure in patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Consistent with other studies, they report a high failure rate for NIV in this patient population. A lower PaO2-FiO2 ratio was associated with NIV failure. Their conclusion that NIV should be used judiciously in patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure is prudent. Despite progress in this area in recent years, attention to nutritional support is frequently neglected in a busy ICU. Sing et al. assessed the adequacy of nutritional support administered to patients requiring mechanical ventilation in the respiratory ICU of a tertiary care hospital and its correlation to outcomes. They report that calorie and protein delivery to critically ill patients was less than the recommended values. Although this was a single-center study from India, many other ICUs around the world would most likely report similar results. Their finding that inadequate calorie delivery was associated with higher odds of mortality should serve as a reminder to all of us to consider the importance of nutritional support in the ICU. The value of ATC is a matter of some debate. Agarwal et al. evaluated the combination of PSV and ATC in weaning patients receiving mechanical ventilation. They report that the addition of ATC with PSV shortened the weaning phase by an average of 8 hours compared to PSV alone. However, the duration of time on the ventilator and time in the ICU were not different between patients who received ATC and those who did not. It is also unclear whether the patients required weaning at all. At the point where the patients were switched to PSV, perhaps a T-piece trial would have been successful without PSV weaning. The authors are correct in recommending that more clinical trials are needed to clarify the role of ATC. Measurements of chest wall circumference are used by a physical therapist to determine chest wall mobility. However, variability in the methods used to obtain such measurements has not been reported in patients with COPD. Malaguti et al. analyzed the reliability and accuracy of chest wall mobility measurements and investigated the association between chest wall mobility and inspiratory capacity. They found that high variability was observed in all chest wall mobility measurements. Although there was an association between inspiratory capacity and measurements made at the abdominal level, chest wall mobility did not infer pulmonary function. The six-minute walk test is widely used for functional evaluation of patients with COPD. However, the test requires a 30-meter unobstructed hallway, which is not always available. Alameda et al. compared the results of hallway versus treadmill six-minute walk tests in patients with moderate to severe COPD. They found that the mean hallway walk distance was significantly greater than the mean treadmill walk distance and correctly conclude that the hallway and treadmill walk tests are not interchangeable. Hayes and Kramen review the physiologic basis of spirometry. 
This month's case report by McDonald et al. relates to primary snoring and growth failure in a patient with cystic fibrosis. The teaching case of the month by Sancho Chust et al. is a case of pulmonary tumor embolism as an initial manifestation of pancreatic adenocarcinoma. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.